So, Father, one, I just, uh, just ask for myself, Lord, that you call my mind down to be able to focus on you and your word. And, Lord, that you draw out of my heart and my mouth those things that you've placed there as I've, as I've sat with you, Lord. And for the hearers, I'm asking for each person, Lord, that through the power of your spirit that you would enable them to hear your voice. We're here to know you. We're here to see you. We're here, as we just sang, Lord, to, to pour out our devotion to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to read through this, and we'll back up and give context to where we are in this letter and what's going on. So 1 Corinthians, chapter, 2 Corinthians, sorry, chapter 6, verse 14 do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and will walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn for I have, I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, 
What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you, by y'all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Now this is what makes this letter pretty confusing. Paul's, Paul's kind of tricky with his language. And this is, if you ever had somebody come to you when you needed correction and all you get from them is the correction, the harshness, how do you receive it? Do you kind of want to put up your dukes, defend yourself, defend your perspective, come against that person that you feel is coming against you? That's kind of the, the emotion of self-defense comes out. Paul's language he is, through this, there, there's tension, there's issues going on between the Corinthians and Paul, and it's been going on for an extended period. There's a letter that's gone that we just saw that he says that this letter made them sorrowful, but they've responded in a way. Not everybody, but most of them, by Titus's witness that we were just told, most of them, they repented because the letter that they received, it produced in them a sorrow, a grief. I am wrong. I am in error in this. Most of them were reconciled with God. Yet at the same time, Paul's exhortation in this letter is you need to be reconciled. At the very end of this, he's, he has this final exhortation. I am coming. You need to examine yourselves before I arrive. And not in just relationship between them and with Paul. It's First, having your relationship with God right in regards to who he is, his nature, his character, what he has done, what he has done not just for you personally, but what he's done for each of us. And in that correction, in that reconciliation with him, that leads us to have reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul is in this position where he is encouraging them to be reconciled. Don't you realize that all of us, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are now new? My behavior towards you, I haven't hidden anything. We are asking that you Corinthians, in, uh, in chapter 6, verse 11, where we ended, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You, have, you were not restricted by us, but you were restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as children, you also be open. He's pouring out his heart to them. He's pouring out who he has always been. He's pointing out his behavior, uh, whether it's towards them or in different communities, whether it's been in the time of blessing or whether it's been in a time of distress in his life. He's been consistent. His heart is open to them. Corinthians, open your heart to us. And again, he picks that up in chapter 7 also. But 
This whole section is called a digression. Uh, this, uh, just so you have the structure of the letter. In chapter 2, verse 13, he talks about departing from Macedonia. And here in chapter 7, he shows up in Macedonia. All the material in between is seen as a digression away from the main subject matter. And now he has a digression within a digression, which he tells them, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. How do you always hear that taught? Marriage. Which this language is totally applicable in marriage is that an unbeliever should not pursue being married to a believer and vice versa, because there's, there's a difference. There's a, there's a difference of focus. There's a different trajectory. Um, the unbeliever is going to cause the believer to regress and go backward and go towards the world. Or if the believer stays strong, there's going to be a major cross to bear because there's going to be constant tension and not real oneness in Christ in the marriage. But that's not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about marriage. But listen to, listen to his exhortation, and in the subject matter that he's addressing the Corinthians, we can kind of get a flavor of what's really going on in, uh, in this community. And again, I, I say this lightly. When you read the commentaries, it's a lot of if statements. Maybe it's this. Probably it's that. There's a lot of that language because we don't know the specifics. And I praise God that we don't know the specifics. One, one because... Love covers a multitude of sins. Like Paul doesn't need to rehash all the information that he's already rehashed. They've dealt with the subject matter that created the tension in the first place, and now he's just pursuing reconciliation. So there's no broad brush like this is the one main issue. Um, but you can get a flavor of what's going on in their heart because there's a mix in this community. Do not be unequally yoked. The language comes out of the Old Testament of an ox being yoked together with a goat or a donkey. Um, they're, they're unequal. It's not how you plow a field. That imagery they would understand and it's imagery that we can sit into. And then he asks these rhetorical questions. What fellowship, so what participation does righteousness have a share and participation with lawlessness? And we all respond, no. What about, what about light and darkness? Does light commune with darkness? As we talk about communion, that you have who Jesus is and all that he did, saying that this is my body, this bread represents my body, which was given for you for the remission of your sins. This juice, this grape juice, this wine represents my blood, which represents the new covenant. And we sit on the other side of that table, communing with him, participating with him, sharing with him. So the imagery that we're getting out of this, what communion does light have with darkness? Any? Because what happens when the light turns on? Where's the darkness go? It's not around fades away. There is, there is no communion between light and darkness. What accord, literally, what agreement does Jesus have with Satan? Belial. It's another, it's a, uh, the word means worthless is what Belial means. It's another Old Testament name for Satan. Satan meaning adversary, devil meaning accuser. So what relationship, what agreement, what contract does Jesus have with Satan? Any? None. 
What part, what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? Now, again, this isn't where we sever all relationships, but it's talking about what, what in the life of Christ does a believer share with an unbeliever? There is none. There is no share because an unbeliever defined biblically as dead in their sins. There is no life. There is no part. There is no share. When an unbeliever becomes a believer, there's the share. There's the part that we take, uh, that we partake in together. What agreement, what union does the temple of God have with idols? So this imagery for them would be uh, a lot more relevant than for us. But again, the, the drama of this culture of Rome dominating the Jews. What happened culturally when the Romans attempted to set up an idol in the temple? Violence. I mean, this, this, is, this, is, this is like the greatest of sin to, to uh, commit in this culture in this time. So it's something that's very passionate. So what we're getting out of this, the questions that Paul is asking is that what it seems to be is that believers in Jesus, so this community, as they are gathering together in Christ, they have relationship with, agreement with, union with, communion with people who are standing in an opposite message, and a message that is in conflict with the gospel. It's in conflict with who Jesus is. It's in conflict with who Paul is. So this is, this is the question to get them to think. Again, as, as we get to the end of this section, he's getting them to think. He's telling them that they need to be reconciled. He's pointing out their issues. And then at the same time, he's pointing out his love for them. I'm addressing you so that my care can be revealed to you. But as he gets into the subject matter of who the living God is, this is what I brought up as we talk about something, a book like the knowledge of the holy that walks through all these attributes of God. Listen to what this says about the living God, not an idol, not the imagination of man's hearts, but the living God, the God who has always existed, eternal, uncreated, all-powerful, all-knowledge, perfect love, no sin, no darkness, all light. The living God says, I will dwell in you. These are, these are words that are meant to stop us in our tracks, to capture our minds so that we can surrender our hearts to God. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the dangers of having a lost heart. Last week, that focus of having an open heart, heart towards God and what an open heart looks like towards our brothers and sisters. And this morning, really focusing on a clean heart because God is the one who comes in as he dwells in us through faith in Christ. He gives us a clean, new, fresh heart as he dwells in us. Do you know that God, the living God, is in our midst right now. He hears everything that you're thinking. He knows all that you're hiding from. He knows all that you're pursuing. He is walking in your midst, in our midst, told in the Old Testament that he sings over us. 
where God walks is holy. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's a quote from Moses out of Leviticus. Sit in that, just, just, I'm sitting in it right now, but God says to you, you are mine, and I am yours. And then the exhortation for this, and again, in regards to the language of not being unequally yoked, come out. Come out from the world. Come out from your old master. Come out from your, ple- your flesh. Come out from your ideas. Come out from your religion. This is the language that God used when he called Abraham. And we can sit in calling after calling after calling. This is the, the calling of Jesus to come and follow me. Come out. Come out from among them, defined as unbelievers, darkness, Belial, idols. Be separate, says the Lord. So come out and be separate. This is the whole process of sanctification, that we have been separated to him, and we are further being refined and separated by him over time. Do not touch what is unclean. You know, a lot of this language is associated with idolatry in the Old Testament, associated with the laws in regards to what is clean and what is unclean. All these definitions ultimately pointing out to what sin is and what holiness is. Holiness is God. As we come to him, what does he say? I will receive you. We sat in this last week as, as God is a judge where he says, I reject you and I receive you. And there's, in this language, um, there is much work that only God can do. But in this letter, there's a lot of exhortation about our stewardship of our own heart. As we steward our heart, we are not to live in fear of the circumstances of life, but we are to live in the fear of God. So we're not to tremble at all the, the different issues that come across our path, but we tremble at the Almighty God. We don't lose courage. We take up courage in Him and face the day, whatever may happen. As, we, as He is the one, as we steward our hearts, we are the ones that are told that we have to open the door of our heart. God is not going to force your heart open to Him. But when you open the door to Him, he comes in and he takes up residence and he starts cleaning house. Talk about that. Here, having a clean heart. Again, we need to submit that we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus, as stewards of our own minds and our hearts and our bodies, to not be participating in agreement with all that is outside of Christ. Do you see the language? So you, as much as it has to do with you, you come out and you come and he separates. And then we have this definition that he receives us. And again, New Testament, we know that he receives us as we demonstrate faith in Jesus Christ. We cry out to Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice not only cleans us, but appeases the wrath of God Everything that God would say, I reject you. We are now clean. We are now holy. We are now being brought into his presence continually. And this declaration, I will be a father to you, 
and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I pause in all of this language um, because, one, I don't believe the word of God is flippant. I don't believe that Paul himself is flippant. I don't believe that these are words that the Corinthians or we should just run through really fast. When the word of God is quoted, it's being quoted for a reason. And the declaration here is in regards to who the living God is. You know, what does it mean that God is almighty? That he has all power. I mean, these are, these are words of great comfort. They are words that declare and describe who this being is that created us. Again, like I, was, I brought up earlier, this is where I sits in my relationship with God. When we worship, when I study the word, when you're communicating to me about who God is and what he's done in your life, I'm, I'm, this is where I gravitate to is the knowledge of who this being is. We're told that the knowledge of him is eternal life as he reveals who he is, as he reveals the gospel to us. Again, these are all to be terms that we sit in. This, this idea that God is a father. Yes, God has created everything, um, but the unbelievers, before you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you were called a child of Satan. The child of wrath. And to sit in that truth of that's, that's who I was. And even in the who I was, Jesus still died for that man, me. He still pursued me. He still called me. He knocked on my heart. And that day when I opened my heart to him, all of a sudden, the Lord Almighty became my father, and I became his son. These are, these are words of powerful emotion, powerful relationship. They declare to us his nature, they declare to us his heart, and they declare to us humanity's issue, which is separation. Sin separated, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. You go through the genealogies and you, you land in chapter 6 of Genesis and the world is just filled with evil and violence and God determines to send a flood to eradicate all of humanity except eight in judgment. And then of those eight that get off the ark and repopulate humanity, as they gather together, they're building towers to themselves, to their idols. And that's that moment where you have the call of Abraham at the end of chapter 11, there in chapter 12 of Genesis. Abraham, come out from among them. Get out from your family. Come and follow me to a place that I will show you, that I will promise to you, that I will give to you. And all the promises wrapped up in Abraham. Again, this, this, there's a depth of proclamation in these words. And all of that is to weigh into the therefore statement of chapter 7. These are the promises that we have. Grip them tight. Know what they are. Beloved. Therefore, we have these promises. Loved ones. Let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. So not just the physical things in life. But we got to allow God to do the work in our mind and our heart. Perfecting the holiness. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
And this is where we're going to sit and just the, like, what does this process look like? How much does it have to do with us? And what are some examples that we can sit in? So jump down to verse 20, where he's, he's, addressing, uh, he's addressing the Corinthians. He's addressing the letter that was sent to them. And he's addressing their response, their godly sorrow. In verse 10, it says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So in this statement, is, is it's in our responsibility as it's in our court to cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh, from the filthiness of the spirit. What does this look like? What does godly sorrow look like versus worldly sorrow is the subject matter of what Paul's addressing. So there's three big examples for me that we can sit in in the word of God that if you know these stories, you'll be able to sit in them as we go through it quickly. If you don't know these stories, I want to invite you to really sit in the contrast between what godly repentance looks like and what worldly repentance looks like. First one in the Old Testament we see is between Jacob and Esau. So twin brothers, Esau defined as this, this man of the field. He is the older brother. He is the one who has specific blessings and specific responsibilities in his culture as the firstborn son for when dad passes away, this is what he steps into as his, in, as his inheritance. And then you have Jacob as the younger son. When you walk through the story of Jacob and Esau, what kind of character do you see in Jacob? Jacob was a liar. Jacob was a thief. Jacob was a conniver. Jacob was in control of his own destiny, so to say. He tricked his brother. With mom, he lied to blind old dad. Pretended to be the brother to get the blessing. And again, everything that that meets, uh, means in that culture. Esau, he's just, he's just a guy in the field. He's a hunter. He's kind of a burly, hairy guy. You know, we don't see anything in regards to this, uh, you know, major snapshots of his life other than um, he finds out that mom and dad don't like the women that he marries. So he tries to, you know, set himself up in different ways. Old Testament and New Testament tells us that God loved Jacob and God hated Esau. So why does God love this liar, this conniver, this thief, this man who's trying to do it all himself? Repentance. Worldly repentance versus godly repentance. So when Esau finds out what, what happened, what his brother did, he's mad at his brother as he should be. He's going to wait for dad to die, then he's going to kill his brother. He's holding on to these bitter thoughts. But it says that he sought repent. He was repenting in tears and weeping. Father, don't you have a blessing for me? I made a mistake. Versus later on, Jacob, you know, he fast forward 20 years down the road and he finds himself in a position where he's wrestling with God, where God's got to break him. And it took him 20 years to break him. And then God gives him the name Israel, that he's now no longer this, this supplanter, this heel snatcher. He's now governed by God. He's now a prince of God. 
So when you watch Jacob come back to Esau and that interaction that they have together, you watch an incredibly transformed, humble heart as he is approaching his brother in humility and seeking forgiveness and reconciliation in the relationship with his brother. But Esau, Esau's repentance, it was worldly. It was he lost something. He lost a blessing, and that was his only focus. Another one to, to sit in is the difference between Saul and David. Saul, called and appointed by God, is the first king of Israel. But in his relationship with the prophet Samuel, Samuel gave him instructions of God to do certain things. And we see multiple times Saul not doing what he was told. And when Samuel confronts him on not doing what he was told, Saul lists out all these excuses. I was afraid of the people. Well, I was going to do it this way rather than the way that you told me. And you watch God strip the kingdom from Saul and give it to another because, again, in Saul's repentance, in the confrontation, as God confronts him, he has worldly sorrow. He's, he's concerned about himself. He's concerned about what he looks like. He's concerned about what other people, how they're interacting with him. It's worldly sorrow. David, what did David do? Let's see. Took another man's wife, got her pregnant, killed him. That's pretty serious. Um, you know, in the census, how many people died when, when David was welled up in his pride as king and took a census of the people? I think it was like 70,000 human souls died because of David's behavior, because of pride. And then God calls David a man after my own heart. Why? Because when God... As David is blinded by his sin and blinded his excuses, God sends a man, Nathan, to David to confront him. And when Nathan sticks out his finger and says, David, you are the man, in the, in the, the visualization that he was given, what does David do? But she was really cute. and No, I have sinned. I have sinned against God. You sit in Psalm 51 as David's song to God in regards to his repentance. If you want to know what godly sorrow of sin is, and you want to know what a heart that has been broken because of sin, confronted by God and others because of that sin, and you want to see what repentance is, sit in Psalm 51. My sin is always before me, but you wash me, you clean me. Don't take your spirit from me. Create in me a clean heart, is the cry of David. How about New Testament? Peter and Judas. Did Peter get in trouble with his mouth? Did Peter get in trouble with his behavior? We love Peter because we, <laughs> we can identify with Peter very easily. Jesus told Peter, you are going to deny me. No, I'm ready to die for you. And then as the night goes on after Jesus is arrested, we have the account that Peter denied Jesus. I don't know that man. Cursing, swearing in his flesh. I tell you, I don't know that man. 
And when the rooster crows, and again, you walk into any church, when you see a rooster, yeah, there's, there's the memorial for Peter, the rooster, poor guy. What did he do? It says that he wept bitterly. But Judas, as he betrayed Jesus, as he denied Jesus, as he went and received silver, received cash to betray Jesus, and then as the events of the night transpire, he comes to himself in some kind of way, and it says that he is remorseful. Wait, I betrayed innocent blood. Judas Judas had a wake-up moment in the wrong that he was doing. And he goes and he, he throws the silver back. The priests tell him to, you know, pretty much, you go deal with yourself because the priests had what they wanted. And what did Judas do? He hung himself. Now, the Old Testament, again, there's prophecies associated with Judas. He's called the son of perdition. He had a way that he was going to go in, and it wasn't that God created him to sin. I sit, in a, I sit in a heart like Judas. I sit in a heart of so many human beings that realize the error of their ways. I knew, in fact, I still, this is, this is vivid in my mind. Um, I locked into a party crowd my junior year of high school, and, the, you know, that grew into all those different influences. And, you know, you fast forward to tape, you know, six, seven years down the road, I'm sitting at the kitchen table with my mom, telling my mom, This is not who I want to be. I'm sitting in the personal conviction of everything that I'm doing, not understanding that it's God that's convicting me, just uncomfortable in my own skin, in my own behavior. This is not who I want to be. And God sent Julie into my life a few months after that conversation as he was the one preparing my heart. Julie, again, the first born-again believer in Jesus Christ that I ever met, came to me with the message. But again, in that, it was the, the remorse that I was having, the sorrow that I was having. Even in that moment, a lot of it was just worldly, sitting in the consequences, sitting in the ick, and the, this, this is not who I want to be and what I want to do with my life. And then again, traveling down that road, the Lord bringing out of me his godly sorrow, pointing out to me of, this is how you have grieved me. This is why these behaviors are wrong. This is who I am. This is what I have done. And as he revealed himself to me, again, as as we were singing earlier, oh, God, how we love you. This process of cleansing ourselves, it has everything to do with just turning. All repentance is, is a change of mind. Um, I've never experienced it personally, but it's, you know, it's the stuff that you witness on TV or it's the things that Christians will mock of other Christians of that, that standard, you know, we'll just say Southern Baptist preacher or whatever, you know, turn or burn, repent you sinners or you're going to go to hell. Now, I've never talked that way. I've never had anybody communicate that way. But when Jesus first shows up on the scene in his public ministry, what are the words that come out of his mouth? Repent. Turn around. Change. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of these nations, again, the, the being called out, we are called out of the world. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is coming in all of his glory as king. 
Repent. Repentance is necessary in our lives. Not just in that initial moment where we are turning, and some of us it's immediate, some of us it's a slow turn to Jesus Christ. There is a daily repentance that goes on as we continue to point ourselves at him. And that's what godly sorrow does. There's, there's a recognition, and this is what Paul is doing in this community, and it's been an ongoing conversation, that they've had a recognition of where they were off. And they got their hearts right with God in a way that was repenting in a godly manner, repenting like Jacob, repenting like David, repenting like Peter as examples. And repentance, godly repentance, godly sorrow, there's, there's a production, right? Godly, godly sorrow, is, it's an emotion, it's a feeling that we have, it's something that we are experiencing. When it is godly, when it is of the Lord and the heart and the mind are submitted to the Lord, it's producing a fruit. That fruit is repentance, which is a turning, a change of mind. And then there's, there's fruit of repentance. It says diligence, it produced all these things in you. It produced a defense, not that you were defending your actions. Jesus is our defender. You sit in courtroom language where Satan, the adversary, the devil, the accuser, Standing before the judge, the almighty God, accusing us. Jesus is our clearing. He is our defense. We are guiltless because of him. What indignation? Indignation, it's, it's anger, but it, it's opposition to that which was wrong and that which was off. True repentance brings about an opposition towards that that we turned from. What fear? Again, not fear of man, but this fear, this awe, reverence towards the Lord God Almighty. Repentance brings about in us this vehement desire, this longing to be like Jesus. In all those different ways, we still recognize how we are off and we continue to submit our heart to him. Godly sorrow producing repentance brings about vehement desire, a longing to be like him, to be fully clothed in him. We are groaning that we talked about last week. Repentance brings about zeal. Zeal, the word is hot. Brings about heat and passion in your relationship with Jesus. Again, you want to sit in a backsliding believer, what's happened? Temperature's cooled. You sit in the book of Revelation where the lukewarm Laodicean church, what does Jesus want to do with lukewarmness? Totally gross visual. But it's, again, all these, they're supposed to stop us in our tracks. Godly repentance brings about this heat in our relationship and vindication, which brings about justice. God working his justice, his righteousness, his rightness in our lives. And all of these things, he's, he's commending them. You've proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And again, I love this. When he was writing, it's not just for the sake of somebody who does 
what is wrong so that you're correcting this. Nor is it just for the sake of those who suffered the wrong. But ultimately what Paul is doing is he's opening his heart to the Corinthians. Is I want my earnest care and love to be revealed to you. I love you in the name of Jesus. And that's as I'm writing, as Paul is engaging with them, this is what I want revealed to you. I want Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to be reconciled with Jesus. I want you to be repentant. I want you to be, if you're grieved by something in life, I want it to be in a godly way. And in my interaction with you, it's just, I just want you to know that I love you. That my earnest care, my concern for you, let it be revealed to you. And then again, he is... As he's dealing with harder subject matters, this is something that I think in our marriages, in our parenting, as we deal with conflict in the church, I think we always need to remember like both sides of the coins, especially when you have a stone to throw at somebody or something. It could be outside the church, you know, church global, um, you know, outside of the walls of this building where we want to throw stones at uh, brothers and sisters. We were having a conversation this morning in prayer, you know, and I'm wanted to throw some stones at people, just things that people say that irritate you, that ruffle your feathers. Even if I had a one-on-one relationship with that individual, okay, I'd want to talk about this, but at the same time, you don't want to forget about all the good. And that's what Paul's emphasis is on. I remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Even as you need to be reconciled, as there are things that are going on, as you need to be made sorrowful in a godly way, as repentance is necessary in your daily walk with Jesus Christ, as we witness this occur in your life, as you've done historically, as we're encouraging you to do right now, I'm comforted. I'm comforted by God. I'm comforted by Titus. So Paul sent this, this harsh, painful letter with Titus. They receive Titus, they sit in the content of that, and then when Titus comes back to Paul, Paul is letting them know he refreshed us. Titus was refreshed in you, we were refreshed by Titus. And I love, that, I love how he's, uh, it's kind of like a father telling a son or a daughter, do me proud. Don't make my boasting about you be a lie. And he's encouraging them, my boasting about you to Titus Thank God that my boasting about you proved true. He's encouraging them to continue down the path of following Jesus. He's encouraging them to examine your life. Take a moment and examine your life. What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you reading? Who are your friends? What are your pursuits? Are any of those things grieving to God? Are any of those things going to put you in a position where you're going to be like Esau if you keep traveling down the road where you're going to be weeping? Or like, um, uh, like Peter, where the behavior that you're investing yourself in right now is going to lead to bitter tears? These are the things to like stop those now. Submit your mind and your heart to God now. If you're struggling in those things, the Holy Spirit is the one that's convicting you. And submit that thought, submit that behavior. Have that change of of pattern of life where I'm, you know what? I don't need that anymore. I'm turning to the Lord. Lord, give to me 
Create in me something that was not there before, which is a clean heart. Create in us, Lord. Worship team, come on. Lord, we do. We pray that you create in us a clean heart. We give you thanks (laughs) for what you have already cleaned. Lord, I know a lot of the men and the women in the room, I don't know everybody, but all of us have heard that call from you. All of us have sat in the emotion of grieving you. All of us have sat in, in the, the pain, the, the pain of hurting somebody else, of sinning against somebody else. And Lord, the, the, the flesh emotion, Lord, we want to hide from those things. It's uncomfortable to sit in, but we're asking through your spirit that you do your godly work within us. Lord, you don't create in us a sorrow to leave us in that pit, but we're told that through faith in you, we arise. Through faith in you, you lift us out of the mire and the muck, whether we placed ourselves there or somebody else did. We hear your call to repent. We hear your call to follow you. We hear your call to know you. And we confess in you, Lord, we have a, we have a longing to be like you. We have a longing, Lord, to, to be a light for you. We have a longing, Lord, to, to influence humanity in a godly way. We have a longing, Lord, to, to see people restored by you. Thank you for the fruits that you produce when we turn to you. Thank you for the new heart, the clean heart, the hopeful heart. Thank you for life. God, keep us in truth in you. Don't let any of us play some kind of religious game. Keep us from being lukewarm and bored with Christian culture, with the things of God, and create in us a a zealous heart, a zealous heart for you, God that we see in Jesus. Amen.